something's got you here, but there should be a goal associated to the reason that you've come. And you put goals into that mixture, you can't fail if you are really truly want to become wealthy or want to become anything, you know. And if I can get them to work with me, for me or together, we can do some amazing things. The biggest thing that I'm afraid of is being 80 years of age, laying on that deathbed, yeah, hearing and looking back over my life and saying, I didn't go for it. Welcome to the Trade Mastermind podcast. This is the Trade Secrets series. I'll be your host, Joseph Valente, and this is the number one podcast for the trade and construction industry. We are the secret to starting, scaling, and growing your trade or construction business. The Trade Mastermind, my ethos has always been, right, to make sure that we share insane amounts of value in the packages that we deliver. So you're gonna get the opportunity to join the 12 months Millionaire Mastermind, okay? The aim of the game here is to teach you and get you on track to become a millionaire within 12 months, right? And if you're around people that have built multi-million pound empires, you will learn what it takes to become a multi-millionaire. The Millionaire Mastermind for me is gonna be very, very exclusive, okay? And I want the right people in the mastermind. So this is application only. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Trade Mastermind podcast. Today, I'm joined by two very special guests. The focus of today is the seven habits of how to become a multi-millionaire, okay? And this is gonna be an incredible episode. To celebrate, we are launching the new Millionaire Mastermind, and I'd like to welcome my two very special guests, Mr. Mike Green and Mr. Neville Wright. Thanks so much for being here. Okay, gentlemen, um, you've taken the time out to be here today and I really appreciate it, yeah? You've got a lot of knowledge um, that you've imparted on me, you know, after you've mentored me over the last Neville two years and uh, Mike for the last kind of six months. And so I know you guys know your stuff. Now, I wanna um, share that knowledge with uh, the Trade Mastermind audience today and I really wanna kind of dig deep into what it takes to become a multi-millionaire. How do you get to that level? And, um, you know, for me, I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And so you don't have to work it out on your own. You just map what somebody else has already done. So I want to start really with um, the first point, and I'm going to put that to you, Mike. So give us one trait of becoming a multimillionaire. Yeah, so one I just mentioned uh, in the intro there is that you can't do it on your own. You know, it's other people. And one of the sayings I used to love in my 20s and 30s, and I used to have a picture on the wall was, I saw further by standing on the shoulders of giants. And to me, what I saw that was, was I'm not the best at everything. And in fact, I might not be the best at anything. But what I can do is I can find people who are outstanding at different things. And if I can get them to work with me or for me or together, we can do some amazing things. So, you know, whether that is getting a great accountant who can make sure that the money's protected, that I've well funded, that forecast correctly and working towards that. If I can get a great marketeer so the message gets out there and I bring in new interest, new sales, uh, it's about that. And, 
connected to that, I guess, the, the best example I saw of it was Henry Ford, who back in the 1930s, the New York Times called him stupid. And so he sued them. And in their defense, they said he left school at 14, he can't read, he can't write, therefore he is stupid. He defended himself. And um, he said to them, he had a box with him, he said, this is a replica of a box I have in my office. Now, we didn't have mobile phones or apps, so it was hardwired. But this box was about sort of this big, and it had six buttons on the top. And he said, I've got a box like this in my office. If I press that button, one of the best engineers I believe in the world will be in my office within 10 minutes. If I press that button, one of the best salespeople in America, if not the world, will be in my office in 10 minutes. If I press that button, one of the best marketeers will be in my office in 10 minutes. And so he went through the buttons and then he said, so it isn't about my intelligence. My actual intelligence isn't academic necessarily, but it is knowing that with great people, I can build a great business. And you know, it's, it's worth hundreds of billions of pounds today, still one of the biggest car manufacturers in the world. And so, you know, that first principle for me is make sure you're surrounded with great people. Make sure you get great mentors or great people that you can look up to and that you can emulate. And some of that is face-to-face. You can't beat face-to-face. But some of it might be just looking at, you know, whether it's YouTube excerpts or speeches that have been done, videos of great leaders I never had that when I was a kid. I had to read books. I read over 700 books in my 20s and 30s. But now we can log on and we can see blogs and we can see life stories and biographies. But the key principle is you can't do it alone. You need great people. Amazing. Fantastic answer. Mike's made a fantastic point there. And building that power team um, is incredibly important. And I think, you know, um, being comfortable with hiring people and surrounding yourselves with the right people is really important for you to start moving forward. Because at the moment, you are going to be doing the quoting, yeah, the sales, the marketing, yeah, the operations, the doing of the work, the paperwork, the invoicing, the bookings, all of that stuff, right? And you're not a one-man army. So to get to the next level, you've got to build a team of people and also get around a team of mentors um, to be able to coach you and help you to do that stuff. Second question goes to Neville. And I just want to say um, that Neville sold one of his businesses. 2011. 2011 for 70 million cash and cash yeah. so Neville give me a trait of becoming a multi-millionaire how do we get 70 million cash I think everybody has hopes needs wants and dreams everybody and um, and if you have hopes needs wants and dreams and you put goals into that mixture you can't fail if you are if you really truly want to become wealthy or want to become anything you know started off as a window cleaner um, one of the things that um, I uh, had was I was hungry. I was oh, literally, I was hungry. I needed to put food on the table. You know, one day I found myself on the uh, welfare and then uh, for three months and then altercation with them um, because I wanted two pounds a week extra to feed my wife and child. And at that time I was living in a 10 foot caravan and, um, and things, uh, people used to say, uh, How's it in the 10-foot caravan? I go, well, it's great. Uh, we've got running water. And they said, oh, you plumber? Did you plumb it in yourself? And I go, no, it's the uh, condensation every morning running down the walls. <laughs> it was shit. Winter of 73, 74, you know, when you're in that predicament and haven't got any money for food. And do you know what they said? They said, if you want another £2 a week, have another child. I said, I can't afford 
to feed the one that I've got and you are telling me to have another child and it hasn't the the system hasn't altered in 40 odd years 50 odd years it hasn't altered so they'll still advise you to have another child you know and keep you down and that's what they want they want to keep you down well I was angry and I was sad at the same time and I said if you can't look after me uh, then I'll look after myself and there was a turning point there where I burnt my bridges and I said I'll never go begging cap in hand to anyone ever again and that's quite powerful so your hopes needs wants and dreams kick in and your goals and my goal was to earn a couple of pounds to feed the family and uh, and you know you start from there and every day changes there is there is this fear and I think I had the fear of failing and going back in that dole office which was was in the middle of Peterborough it's there it's not there anymore um, I had that fear of opening that door and the guy at the back of the counter saying I knew you'd fail I knew you'd be back and that drove me every minute of every day it drove me and um, in in the end uh, we came, became the biggest landlord in the 80s uh, in Peterborough, private landlord in Peterborough in the 80s and 90s. Uh, we took uh, ideas and we built businesses that we knew nothing about uh, to become the, the top independent nursery uh, company in the UK and probably in Europe from knowing nothing. So it can be done. We had 125 staff in one shop full-time stuff in one shop. The question was, one trait on how to become um, a multimillionaire. So you're saying goals, dreams, wants, yeah? yeah? And having that hunger to succeed, yeah? yeah? To literally eat and to succeed, yeah? This is one of the most powerful things um, that you can do. Keeps you on track, keeps you motivated, keeps you guided, yeah? What are you getting up for? What was today? Why did you come here? What do you want from today? Something inside you has brought you here because maybe you heard the word millionaire, maybe you heard the word mastermind, maybe you realised it was free and thought, I'm going to take some of that, right? I don't know, right? Um, but something's got you here. But there should be a goal associated to the reason that you've come. And if it is to be a multi-millionaire, then that's fantastic. But you need to write it down. Okay, um, and you've got to be able to track and measure, okay, how it is that you're um, doing along that journey. Now, I write mine, down, write mine down every single morning and every single night. We will have shit days, we will have great days, okay? But um, in the worst days, I look at the goals and I say, this is what I'm doing it for, this is what I need to achieve, um, this is why I'm getting up. And then in the great days when I hit them, I'm crossing it off the list and then I'm ready to write another one. Yeah, what's next? But unless you're, it's a bit like having a sales target. Yeah, unless you've got a sales target, are you going to be able to hit it? No, right? You can't hit what you can't see. So your goals for me are like a target. So you're writing them down. So you know actually what it is that you're working for. So Mike, give us number three. So number three for me, you, you just said, uh, we'll have shit days, yep. things don't go right. And you know, Neville's written a great book. I wrote a book called Failure Breeds Success. And when I was writing it, the lady who was trying to take my loot and splurring and turn it into something sensible with me, she said, you can't call it Failure Breeds Success. I said, why not? Everyone fails. Yeah, but if you've got failure in the title, no one will want to buy it. Now, it got to number 10 in Amazon uh, books when we launched it for about three months. And 
I still believe today that failure breeds success is a really important principle. Everything you ever become good at, you are crap at to start. Whether it's the first steps you take as a baby, you get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up, fall down. You don't step the first time, try and walk um, a few steps, fall over and think, sod it, I was clearly never meant to walk. If your desire to walk and keep up with the other people or your family is strong enough, you will keep getting up. If you learn to ride a bike, you fall off, fall off, fall off, but your desire to ride a bike because your mates are is such that you'll keep getting back on, even if you're bruised and cut and hurt. If you're playing computer games, you get a rubbish score, but your friends are doing well, so you want to do better and better. And then suddenly we get a job and we think, I don't want to look like a failure. I don't want to fail. I don't want anyone laughing at me down the pub saying it didn't work out. Neville said his, he, one of the things he didn't want was the fear of going back and, and saying I failed. And yet we tend to think most motivation is positive. Some of the best motivation is the fear of failure. And negatives can drive you. So fear drives you as much as, as positive pulls you. But you have got to get comfortable with the fact that everything you've ever done or will ever do, you'll probably fail your way to in some ways. Now, hopefully there'll be small failures. They'll be managed. If you've got mentors or coaches or you get expert people, they will say to you things that will stop you tripping up or falling over or failing so much. But you're still going to have some challenges. And, you know, I, I was once told I went bankrupt in my uh, 20s. We lost our business. I was delivering pizzas with my wife for, um, for two years. And then I was, that was mostly afternoons and evenings because we had to start again from nothing. I lost my house as well. And I remember thinking, this can't be it. I was a failure. I failed. My business failed. I lost my house. I lost my business. I was a failure. But then I thought, well, I'm not a failure that business failed. And then I read some books by people like Richard Branson or, or people who were super successful but had had challenges. And I thought, actually, they've all failed. And you show me someone who's really a success who says they've never failed at anything, and I'll tell you they've had failures, they're lying. They're just focusing on the positive. And that's nothing wrong with that. You should focus mostly on the future. And if you thought about where you should focus, you know, think of being in a car. Your rear view mirror's this side, your side windows are that side, but most of it is the future the front, the screen. So you should be mostly focused on the future. And if you do that, you won't ever be a failure. You will pass through failure on your journey to success. Failure is not a destination. It's an event that happens along the way. And actually, it makes you stronger. It makes you more driven as long as you keep getting up. So for me, the third principle would be you've got to accept that it's not all going to be easy, that you are going to have shit days, that you are going to have things that don't go how you wanted or how it planned. You're going to have years, maybe a year or two, where you make a loss on the journey to making a lot. But if you keep on going, I truly believe, if you, as Neville said, if you set a goal and you're clearly focused on that goal and nothing's going to stop you achieving that goal, as long as you keep on with that, whatever happens, you will achieve that goal in the future. I don't believe a single person who keeps focused on their goals and keeps going will not achieve them in time. Excellent. Great point. Now, I remember the first five years in, in business, and I'd heard that statistic that, you know, business, some businesses fail in the first year, some in the third, some in the five, and it meant so much to me to not become one of those statistics within that five years, and I did everything I possibly could to hang on for those five years, um, growing the organization, and I remember when I got past it, I was like, right, well, I must be in the safe zone now. Yeah. You know, I've got past those five years, so I'm not going to be that statistic, um, and 
you know, I continue to grow my business. And one of the things that I always um, knew in the back of my mind that failure um, was going to be a part of growing a business very, very quickly. I never thought it was going to happen. Yeah, but I knew that it was definitely going to be a part of it. And one thing that I was always say to myself is, Joe, I would rather shoot and miss. Yeah, than never shoot at all. So I'd rather shoot and miss than never shoot at all. The, the, one of the biggest thing that I'm most afraid of in this life, yeah, and it's not much, right, but the biggest thing that I'm afraid of is being 80 years of age, laying on that deathbed, yeah, hearing boop, 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 and thinking and looking back over my life and saying, I didn't go for it. I lived average. I didn't try and become the best version of me. Because all those risks and everything that you take become insignificant in the face of death, right? And you got one opportunity to really go for it and make it um, the best possible life that you've got. So why not shoot and go big, yeah? Number four, Neville. You just reminded me of something that I put in the book uh, along with thousands of other things. Um, life is a game. Uh, life, to me, I have to treat it as a game. It's like being in a fun fair. You go to Disney and there's a great fun fair, there is. And uh, we're all in this fun fair together. And some of us will uh, have their tickets to go through uh, the fun fair, uh, but we choose not to. We choose to go on the teacups because that's safe. So you keep going on. You keep using your tickets up on the, on the teacups and on the little rides. And it's the people who go through. You've got to go on the House of Horrors. You've got to go through the House of Horrors. You've got to go on the uh, spectacular uh, ones that will <laughs> make you know, shit awesome. yourself. Uh, and what I say is business is he easy. It's really easy to be successful. But it is very hard at the same time. So why do I say it's easy yet it's hard? Because life is a game. And, and you've got to treat it as a game, as, as a bit of fun. And, um, and then you can do your best at it. But why I say it's easy is because they can't be asked to do it because they haven't got that motivation. So therefore, it makes, it's very hard in business, but it makes it easy for you. If you are willing to make the effort that nobody else is, that 99% that of people are not, then, you know, it becomes easy. It does. So, you know, that's the way I look at uh, life. And, and I see people going to the gym, working out, uh, biking up mountains, mountain climbing, whatever they do. And they put so much effort in. And that's just a hobby. I found that I haven't got time for hobbies, so I have to uh, concentrate on my business. You know, for the last 50 years, I've concentrated on my business. But I put just as much effort in as if I was playing. Mm -hmm. So... That's the way I look at it. You know, life is a game. Every day, you know, you can, you can go to this gym in your mind, you can go to this fun fair in your mind, and you can win. I love that, Neville. Thank you. And um, it's just kind of made me think, you know, what you're saying there about the competitive advantage. Train Mastermind's probably got now nearly 3,000 customers, 
Yes, yeah, so we've got 1% of the market. That over the last two years, we've onboarded and trained to become better at business. Now, you think since you guys um, have been involved in the Trade Mastermind, how much you've learned, um, how much you've um, experienced, and how much you've done in your business, yeah? How much further have you got than the rest of those 330,000 people? Because 99% of those other businesses in construction are focused today on working on the tools. They're not focused today on working on themselves. I was with Tony yesterday in the sales office and I was speaking to a guy and um, he wanted to join us on this renewables event that we're doing. Yeah, and he wouldn't put the drill down to talk to Tony. So I snatched the headphones off him, I put them on my head, I said, listen, Kenny, what's going on, my man? Right, that drill's gonna be there in five minutes. Yeah, do you wanna grow your business or not? Because Tony's called you five times. Yeah, are you interested in doing this or not? Yeah, and he said, well, yeah, I am, but I'm busy, I'm doing the work right now. I said, but you've been doing the work for the last 10 years. Okay, so you've got to take a day off from the tools and you've got to work on yourself because you know the tools are there tomorrow, right? But unless you work on yourselves each day, every day, consistently evolving, improving, getting better, then you're never going to get away from the tools. And wow, what a competitive advantage you are picking up by being part of this versus the other 329,950 people that aren't in this room today. Number five. So I'm going to call that Stop, Breathe, Think. And, and I get that because as Joe was speaking just then, um, it reminded me, uh, a guy called Stephen Covey who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of his habits was sharpen the saw. And he tells the story about these two woodcutters chopping trees down, and one of them's just going at it. And, and it was when you said about the drill guy that yeah. maybe they, and he's going at it like this, and he's chopping, 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 and working really hard. And every time he looks at the other guy, the guy's sitting down there, and he's sharpening his, uh, not his saw, but his, his sickle or whatever it is, he's sharpening that. And um, so he's like, right, I'm going to definitely get more logs on him today. I'm going to definitely chop down more trees on him today because he's just sitting there doing this kind of thing. Anyway, the day, the, long and story because I'm conscious of time, the day goes on. At the end of the day, the guy who was chopping his saw has chopped down so many more trees. But the guy who was chopping really hard and working so much harder couldn't see it because he thought, how come he's done more than me? Every time I turned around, he was just sitting on the log sharpening his saw. And, you know, the principle of, of that with Stephen Covey is if you don't stop to take the time to regenerate, to sharpen that saw, and that saw in this analogy is yourself, to get yourself back on top form, then you're going to blow out at some point. You're not going to achieve as much, even if it feels like you should, because you're working harder. And, and so the stop, breathe, think is something that I've said about people climbing mountains and cycles and stuff like that. I didn't necessarily want to do that, but I had a mentor who would say, I want you to run a marathon. I want you to cross an ocean uh, on a clipper race. I want you to climb mountains and that. And I said, Stuart, why the hell would I do that? And this is in the 90s. He was earning like uh, 18 grand a day. And he said, look, you're broke. I'm not. Do as I say or get another mentor because I know what you can't see about yourself and you need to get away. Now, as I went on the first one, which was climbing a mountain, and I've done many now, but I'm halfway up the mountain and, and I'm like going for it. And the guy says, bully, 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 slowly, slowly, he's saying. And I said, no, but we need to get there. We've got to get there to get to camp. And he said, yeah, but you'll get there quicker if you just take some time to stop, breathe and think. And I said, well, how can that be the case? And he said, well, he said, when you're climbing a mountain, you need more oxygen for your muscles and that needs more red blood cells uh, and so on. He said, but basically, as you go up in altitude, your body prioritizes its organs. Now, the most important organs are your heart and lungs. So if you're going and you're not getting enough oxygen, it will not give your brain as much oxygen. It will not give your arms 
lungs or legs as much oxygen because it's prioritizing needs. The minute you stop, though, it can then think, right, let's get some more oxygen to those outer reaches, but more importantly, to the brain. So if sometimes if you just stop and take a breath, one, you can breathe because you have stopped, and then because you take a breath, you can think more clearly. And that sounds like a really simple thing, but most of us are so busy being busy that we're busy fools. And we don't once a day or once a week or once a month or a holiday a year, we don't take the time to stop, breathe and think. You know, even Churchill, when he was PM over the, the, the wartime period, he used to take an hour each day that he called his quiet hour. Now, I think now he was probably meditating, but he was certainly stop breathing, thinking, what's the biggest issue about today and how do I deal with that? Now, if we think we ain't got time and we're at war as a country and our leader is taking an hour each day and he, he, was, he might not have been the best prime minister in, in all ways, but he was the best wartime prime minister, according to a lot of world leaders, it's because he took the time each day to think, what's the most important thing I need to achieve today and how, what decision do I need to make on that and who else do I need in that decision? It's a bit like Joseph saying he writes his goals out for every day, taking the time to think about that. But most of us don't do that. It seems really obvious. We're running so fast, we're not breathing properly. If we're not breathing properly, we're not getting enough brain, oxygen to our brain and we'll make stupid decisions. So for me, it's stop breathing. Amazing, great stuff. Um, and that's made me think. <laughs> There's a great book by um, Earl Nightingale. Greatest secret, Earl Nightingale. Yeah, and that is that men simply don't think. Yeah, and he describes how, you know, um, the wealthiest among us take that time out exactly as um, Mike's just said. Um, and they measure guys that leave university at 20 and they track them across their lives and they watch the difference at 60 between the ones that really made it and the ones that never made it. Um, and so uh, that's just a point of reference for you guys to um, look into that further. Okay, level number six. Carrying on from Mike, uh, I used to have this thing called uh, CTT, Creative Thinking Time. And you have a creative thinking time, probably half an hour a day. With people, then it's brainstorming. All the time, you've got to look at getting ideas. And um, probably every couple of months, I didn't go into work, you know. I didn't go into the office until the afternoon. And then everybody would see me coming in the office late, two o'clock in the afternoon, and go, what shit have you brought us today? You know, what have you thought about? What are we going to do for the next six months, you know, that you've you have imagined an imagination what you can do and uh, so that's just going on from that so we all have our own time where we want to think we want to uh, uh, make lists of what we the goals we want and things what we not want to do how we want to plan the business and um, so therefore that's just reacting to to mics but um, every day uh, when you go into your business you know you have your goals and you so I must do the most productive thing possible at every given moment. So that is just basic, that is. So you are challenging yourself every single day, every single minute of the day. So uh, I wanted, in uh, 1980, um, it was costing about £129 um, an hour to run one of the businesses. And, um, and I thought, well, I'm going to earn that. So every hour, I, that my goal was to earn £129, and then I'd, that I'd pay for the overheads of the business in that one hour. But I wanted it every hour. So every rep that came in, my goal was to buy the normal stock and then buy stock and save £129. And if that rep went over an hour, I'd got to earn more. 
So it's a goal within a goal, you know. And, um, and then on the way home, and I think everybody should uh, uh, do this. I found it really good. On the way home, I'd say to myself, have I bought my business today or have I sold my business today? So that means if I've improved my business and it's worth more, then I'm selling my business. If I haven't done anything in that day to enhance the value of that business, then I'm buying it. And do I want to buy my business? No, I want to sell my business. So that's uh, something I used to ask myself every day. And every day I used to have this conversation, if people could see me, you know, queued in the traffic, talking to myself, you silly bugger, you haven't, you know, you've bloody bought the business today. Why? Because you wouldn't get off your ass and do something, you know, and tomorrow is going to be different. Tomorrow I'm going to sell my business. So, uh, and, and, I, and I've sold, I've built and sold quite a lot of businesses. An educational business last week, which was in for seven years, um, is the latest one. But, you know, you can, don't be afraid to sell businesses. So you build a business and then you can sell it. And if you don't want to sell it, fair enough. But uh, you take an advantage, you take an opportunity when it arises. And if somebody... Uh, is after your business, then th think, think very hard when you say, no, I'm not selling it because it's too valuable to me. Because will they buy another? Will they buy a competitor? Will they uh, start uh, their own business and put you out of business? So think when somebody approaches you to buy your business, think uh, very hard of what the answer is going to be. Yeah, really great point. Um, but knowing when to sell um, is um, important. And just from my experience within the Trade Mastermind, again, two guys that we've helped build and sell. We, we, as I said to you guys earlier, I've only been going two years. Yeah, so in that time of building my own business, not have we trained thousands of businesses, I've always helped. I've also helped two businesses build from Paul Selman was at 150k, got to 1.2k in 18 months, exited three months ago for six figures. Gary Ashton, I did it with him in 12 months, 250k um, to seven figures. Um, we sold for six figures. Yeah, um, and those guys were happy with that number. Yeah, they wanted out at that point. They wanted to experience the rapid growth. They wanted to see what it took to build and scale their business to a seven-figure number. But then they also realized that they didn't want to stay in the boiler business. Yeah, so they were happy to take that six-figure sum, get out, take all of the principles that they'd taken from me, all of the knowledge and all of the traits and said, right, hang on, there's lots more ways to make money out there. Bigger margin businesses, more profitable businesses and so on. And they jumped into that next vehicle. Um, so it really is something to think about is what is your exit strategy? You know, and if you don't have one, just write that down. What is your exit strategy and how are you getting out? Yeah. Um, awesome. Okay, cool. I think that puts us um, on finally to number seven. Um, so <laughs> over to you, Mike, to wrap it up. Yeah, I mean, I guess just the, the last 10 minutes of conversation made me think about one of the principles I used to work to a lot is in my early career was retail and uh, we built a, a global uh, retail consultancy which had offices here America Australia New Zealand and worked in 18 European countries as well and it was all retail but um, one of the sayings in retail and it was often about fresh food was the first cut is the best cut so if you've got to reduce the price on something or you've got to sell it because it's going out or there's a problem 
don't leave it too late because once it's gone off, you won't get anything for it. So, you know, when you need to make, and I, I interpret that now as make sure you make the tough decisions. We think that we do that, but often we fail to make the tough decisions soon enough. So if I think about one of the things I'll often say to people is um, if you've got 10 people, let's say, in your business um, or any number, apply this. If you had to tomorrow get rid of 10% of them, so just one, if you've got 20 people, two or whatever, but if you had to get rid of someone tomorrow for the future gain or benefit of your business, who would it be? In the time it took me to say that, you know who that person is. So then one of my mentors used to say, if you can think about them in seconds... Why on earth would you do that? And he told me about Jack Welsh. He used to, it was the, they employed hundreds of thousands of people in General Electric. He said, you've got to get rid of the bottom 10% in every year. Now, that seems really harsh, but what he said is, you think about them that quickly. So if you're keeping them, you're probably abusing them because they think they're doing a good job. They think that they've got a future. But you, in two seconds, thought about them as being the 10% that you'll cull if and when you needed to. Now, if, if you have to get rid of that person, why haven't you, if you could think about them that quickly? Why are they still in your business? And the reason I say that's important is the best way to build great businesses is with great people. Now, every business has great people, it has good people or average, and it has poor people in terms of their, their abilities and their productivity. And I remember one of my old bosses once said, when, when the, the chairman of, of Spa said to him, how are we doing, Darren? And he said, yeah, yeah, we're, good. we're, we're, do we're doing better than average. And this guy, John Irish, threw his hands up in the air and said, average? Fucking average? He said, average is the bottom of the top, the top of the bottom, the cream of the crap. Why the hell would we be happy with average? And ever since then, when someone says to me, oh, yeah, we're above average, or we're better than average, I think that ain't a standard to set yourself. But in the people you employ as well, if you employ average people, a guy called Kip Tindall once said he, he pays twice the going rate, still does today, in a business called Container Store in America, which had 20 years of double-digit growth without break. Uh, he says, I only employ great people, but to do that, I have to pay twice the going rate. He said, but my my staff cost isn't any more than anyone else in my industry because I'm not having to re-recruit, I'm not having to retrain. He said, and great people are at least three times as productive as the average person. And then he said, how many average people do you employ? And you could probably think about that. Who's you, who you got in your business that's great? And I bet they're two to three times as good or effective. And yet we're settling for average or we're accepting the crap, quite frankly. And we're abusing them, really, because we're keeping them in our business when we know they'll be the first to go. So it's about making the tough decisions to say, I'm never going to lose a great person. I'm going to do everything within my power to make them feel valued, to, to make sure I look after them, to know their wife's name, their kid's name, what, what they like doing, what they don't like doing. And if they're unhappy, I'm going to know they're unhappy. By the same token, I'm always going to make the tough decision to let the people who aren't the best in my business go every year because they're dragging down and creating an anchor to my business. So, and that might be people, that might be products, that might be projects. You know, we built this 120, 102 flats next door here with a big glass atrium. Now, we built that through COVID. It cost a million pounds more than it should have because material prices went through the roof. Um, it took nine minutes longer because of the various knockdowns. Was it easy? No, but we had to make some decisions to, to change some of the contractors because they weren't good enough. And it's tough letting a contractor go halfway through. You've got to get someone else to do it. But we had to make sure that to get it to a position, and we benefited long term because property prices went up in that same period. So the extra cost didn't hurt us too much or, or in a way that would mean we didn't make any money. 
But we only did that and we only stopped it being a failure because we made the tough decisions. And yet I mentor lots of businesses who are saying, oh, no, I need to get rid of them, but I haven't got anyone at the minute and, and you know, they're rubbish and I will get rid of them as soon as I can. And I think they're never going to get rid of them. You know, make the tough decisions. Get to the business that's got primarily great people, maybe some good people. And, you, and don't get me wrong, you try and train those people. You can train a good person to be a great person. But another saying that connects to it is, you can spend as much time training a nag as you want, it will never win a race. Invest a bit of that time in thoroughbreds and they'll win every time. But we don't, we spend most of our time trying to fix our nags. Stop focusing on training and spending time fixing your nags. Get rid of them and find some thoroughbreds to support and train better. Excellent. What a fantastic point um, to end the podcast on. Um, and I just want to, again, just quickly share one of my experiences um, up to um, very recent. So, you know, we'd inflated to about 30 people um, only, you know, kind of four to six weeks ago. And I was coming in each day looking around going, wow, how are we going this big in this a short period amount of time? And um, looking at each department saying, I'm sure we've got way too many people. There's no way that each one of these departments is productive. Um, and then it was actually one thing that you'd said to me um, in our mentoring session, which was basically that lesson. And um, I had a couple of people working in the business that had worked for me for a very, very long time. Yeah, that had been loyal to me, that had supported me, but really just weren't performing. And actually they were dragging those departments down um, and weren't getting results, couldn't train them, couldn't get them up to speed. And it had almost become um, a relationship where I think they thought because of the loyalty that I'd given them and they'd given me that they were safe within the business and they were able to just um, not perform and get away with it. And to a point they had. So one day I decided enough was enough um, when I decided to let them go. And I think it was very important for that to happen to show the rest of the team, number one, I'm not messing about. I'm trying to build a business here that's going to be successful, that no one can get away with underperforming. And number two, that individual wasn't growing with me anymore. Yeah, they'd hit their peak. They weren't getting anywhere. They weren't getting job satisfaction. They weren't achieving. They weren't going anywhere. They weren't getting to the next level. So as Mike said, I felt like actually I was doing a disservice to those individuals by allowing them to stay in the role and underperform. Yeah. Um, so I decided to let them go. And it was actually one of the best things that's happened. Um, we remained amicable, explained why. Um, and now it's allowed the business to really tighten up again. I bloated up to about 30 people. I've dropped it down now to about 20. Yeah. And I've not really noticed any difference. Yeah. But as you scale up, you kind of onboard a lot of people and then you trim back up again um, when the time is right. And, you know, making those tough decisions is really important. But as the business continues to go, if I just kept all those people in the business, all I'm doing is keeping that cost of all those underperforming people. And not only is it a constant drain on the overhead month in, month out, the way that I look at it now is those people in those roles that are underachieving are actually stopping somebody in that role achieving yeah so not only are you losing the cost yeah of that overhead you're actually missing all the upside of them flourishing in the role yeah you put it in and you've got a salesman for example that you're paying a basic to and he's only doing 20k a month and his target's 100k a month and you're still having to give him the same 100 leads right then all he's doing is taking up that position and those 100 leads yeah, so it's better to get that person out um, and get somebody in that is going to be able to get you the success and within that. And um, it does take tough decisions. And those guys that I let go, it was quite an emotional one for me, but I had to remove that and pull the trigger.
yeah, to get to the next level. Okay, awesome, great stuff. Um, so thanks very much for listening to that episode of the podcast. I'm Joseph Valente. This is my special guest, Mike Green, and my other special guest, Neville Wright. Um, thank you very much. Let's give them a big round of applause. Thanks, gentlemen. Smashed it. Really appreciate it. The trade mastermind, my ethos has always been, right, to make sure that we share insane amounts of value in the packages that we deliver. So you're going to get the opportunity to join the 12 months millionaire mastermind. Okay, the aim of the game here is to teach you and get you on track to become a millionaire within 12 months. Right? And if you're around people that have built multi-million pound empires, you will learn what it takes to become a multi-millionaire. The Millionaire Mastermind for me is going to be very, very exclusive, okay? And I want the right people in the mastermind. So this is application only. Head over to www.trademastermind.co.uk to find out more or follow us on social media at Trade Mastermind or at Mr. Joseph Valente.